This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 227. And I have back with me on the show the incredible Dr. John Demartini. Uh, you can't get away with anything after listening to this man speak for an hour, I promise. It is just you, your inner truth, your highest values, and whether we want to be brave enough to fess up to it all. It's uh, just such an inspiring thing to be in John's company. I I feel very grateful to be able to bring you another uh, interview with him. And in today's show, we are going to be talking about quite a few different things. I really wanted to make the most of this hour for us, right? So I asked him first about his gratitude journaling. Uh, He is an absolute fanatic for it and he explains in depth why. It's kind of a a pickup from our first conversation on the show. And then we dive into some of the bigger personal challenges people have. The word no, how do we start to make no a positive? What do we need to do to really put the actions in place that help us feel comfortable saying no more often, because this is, it's all very easy to say, you just got to say no more often, but how do we do it? Is what I was really interested to ask John in. We talk about negative self-talk, changing our internal script and how that script impacts us for the better uh, when we get it uh, to be more in sync with our deeper selves. We talk about crisis, we talk about the opportunity that presents itself during crisis, Uh, we talk about self-love, we talk about uh, sort of self-love and then on into judgment and uh, and a whole bunch of stuff in that realm. And then we talk about the experience of parenting and how to help our children really be their best selves instead of anyone's version of what they should be, because that's always a a very um, complex thing to navigate. Uh, We also have kids who are living within particular education systems uh, that we have to then uh, work to still bring out their unique selves within a framework of what society has set as an education system. So there's a whole bunch of things to juggle as a parent. Uh, And uh, John does it incredibly well. Uh, Now, he also talks about um, purpose and we also do talk about teen uh, suicide rates and those climbing. So I just wanted to put that in the front of the show My family has been affected by this uh, in the past and I completely understand that that might mean some people might not want to listen to that part of the show. It might be too overwhelming, triggering uh, or whatever that brings up for you, too intense. Uh, But I do mention it before we start to talk about it as a duty of care as well. So you can make the absolute most of most of the show today um, and perhaps bow out in the the last uh, element if, um, if you don't want to go there. Uh, and, um, and yeah, it's a really powerful, uh, 
session, I felt like I learned so much. Uh, the example of the young boy who was a gamer uh, and helping him unleash his uh, highest self within a regular school framework was really just something so inspiring to hear John break down, as well as a lot of the um, negative self-talk and self-love um, and boundary setting uh, work that he takes us through. So I hope you feel that I do it justice. I asked as many qualifying questions as I could think of at the time so that we could really understand uh, what John teaches. He, of course, has his incredible breakthrough experience that he's taken hundreds of thousands of people through over the decades. I know a few low toxes have done it. We talked about it in the club last time uh, John was on. So there you have it, folks. That is the show, uh, epic as it is, on its way to you in a couple of minutes. Now, before I hook into that, of course, we are now nearing towards the end of March, but you still have quite a few good days to make the most of this month's sponsor offer. I'm very pleased to have Walida back with us. Uh, you may see them join me once or twice a year. And the reason is, is because we are very strict about who we allow to partner with us. Uh, we have a whole bunch of conditions and not many people make the cut, to be honest. And it is why you see the same uh, brands often again and again, uh, putting forward these wonderful offers to help you switch. Um, and it is because we try to really partner with uh, brands that are not just slapping uh, a label on an open market sourced ingredient list to be able to say organic and voila, low tox, yada, yada, but really change makers, people who do more than bottle nice products, but who actually change local economies, farms, partner with different um, communities around the world to strengthen ecosystems, increase biodiversity, improve soil health. Uh, and Walida ticks all those boxes. One of, of course, the major reasons that is, is because one of the co-founders, Walida, a hundred years ago now was Rudolf Steiner, who is the uh, man who gave a series of very famous lectures now that gave birth to biodynamics, uh, a form of regenerative agriculture. And uh, as well as you might have heard the Steiner name used in the Steiner Method education um, area and, uh, and so forth. So Walida is very much grounded in regenerative principles and has never strayed from those uh, and, in fact, has only strengthened them over the decades. Uh, some of their formulations, such as Skin Food, which was created in 1926, is virtually unchanged. So when something ain't broke, you don't got to fix it, is uh, my method of um, choosing low-tox products. And uh, I, it was one of the very first low-tox products I even had before I even knew what low-tox meant once I came to define it as a term. Uh, I just thought it was a really delicious-smelling massage oil that I was really drawn to for some reason. Uh, and uh, I went on to discover all sorts of things and rosemary became... One of my favourite essential oils is, is Arnica uh, in terms of massage and uh, as an anti-inflammatory. So uh, it all made sense once I understood ingredient lists, that's for sure. Uh, but you have a great offer with Walida this month. You have 15% off the entire Walida range. And not only that, you have a bonus 75ml skin food, their cult product, 
uh, with all orders over $100. This does exclude gift vouchers, gift packs, promo items, etc. So don't if you're putting in discounted things, you won't receive a discount on top of that. Um, but if any full price thing, most of which things are on their website, Walida100 is your code to celebrate their 100th birthday. And if your order is over $100, not only do you get that 15% off the entire range, but you also get the bonus skin food valued at $25.95. An amazingly generous offer for their birthday this year. Feel like we should be giving them something. So let's give them some orders. How does that sound? That's for the Aussies, by the way. And uh, I hope you enjoy stocking up on some of your faves or maybe discovering a couple of new things in the range. I will leave you there with the sponsor offer. And now I will lead us into this interview with Dr. John DiMartini, world-renowned specialist in human behavior. He's a researcher, a polygot, an author, global educator who literally travels the world teaching people. He's studied over 30,000 books across all the defined academic disciplines, uh, and he is the founder of the Demartini Institute. He's authored actually more than 40 books himself, uh, and I remember the first time I saw him was on Oprah. Uh, so it, it feels very exciting to have one of Oprah's past guests on our show. We've actually had a few uh, over the years, um, and I know you're going to enjoy this. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Here is John himself. Hello, John. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to have you back. Uh, your first interview was one that has had many people in the community thinking, switching light bulbs on for themselves, and I know we're going to be doing that again today. Uh, I wanted to ask you how your gratitude journal is going because this was something from the first interview. People were like, 37 volumes? This is, I can't even imagine. How's it, what, what volume are you up to now? Uh, well, I am working every day on that. So the, the, you, you're already in typed again. And, uh, I type in everything that goes on during the day that has helped me fulfill my mission or challenging doesn't matter and i keep records of it and yeah it's volumes it's in each volume is hundreds and hundreds of pages so i've got thousands and thousands of pages that i've been storing uh, the metrics on my goals and updates on objectives and also the gratitudes that i document every day the things i get to do every time i get to reach people or share a message with people or get to be in a new book or, you know, anything that's part of the thank yous, uh, I, I document. And do you, have you ever skipped a day, you know, like crazy busy day, maybe your back-to-back uh, no, -back talks or interviews? Somewhere in the day, even if I'm on a plane, somewhere in a day, I'm, I'm updating it. I don't get behind. I keep it up because otherwise I forget that information and I want it all in there. Yeah. And so what makes it such a non-negotiable for you? Because it's a document of the things you're grateful for. And when you're grateful for a lot of things, your life becomes pretty inspiring. And uh, it, it centers you because it, it, it's humbling. It's humbling, exactly. It's humbling. And, it, and it's also invigorating for other people who do read it. Some of my students have read through these and they're just, they're just going, whoa. Mm. 
I, mean, I remember do that. they've just sat there and they're going, they got tears in their eyes and go, wow, I didn't, I'm getting to know my dad in ways I didn't even know. So, but man, my students read it and they're inspired and they want to master plan their life because what I write out as the goal, I get to metric and I get to document the gratitudes of, and they go, wow, you can live by design. You don't have to live by duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really powerful stuff. I remember after our first interview, I started gratitude journaling in a much more granular way that you were describing, you know, really focusing down. And I thought, what would it look like if I was tuned into literally every single thing to be grateful for in a day? And the stuff that started to come up really um, amazed me. It, It made me so happy because I was thinking I was really grateful that the flight attendant um, was able to bring me a second cup of tea so quickly because I was really just craving one or I was super grateful that my husband was able to drop me off to the airport because my bags were heavy and everything was just so precise and you think gosh you know what a waste of time but no not at all my heart was so full at the end of the exercise that I've I mean, I, I, I will admit I'm not at uh, at your level of commitment on the gratitude every single day, but I make a point of doing it much more often and I'd like to keep increasing it because I can definitely see a difference on the days yeah, I take I, time. I have set, I, I update goals, I add new goals and I m- add metrics to goals and I've been doing it for a long time. So I, I, I said that I originally wanted to speak on every continent of the realm, the world. So every time I, I had the list of continents and as I ticked them off, I got them all done. And then on my gratitudes, I got the thing. And then I transcribed the, the gratitude also to the area of the metrics. So I know, boop, ticked off all seven continents now. 2,039 cities I've spoken in. So I, every city I get to do another speech in live, I put it in there. And, and, I, and everything that I set out to do, even economics, my financial... Uh, net worth. As I reach new milestones in that, I want to be uh, wealthy. I want to be ultra high worth. I want to be ultra, uh, ultra high worth. You know, I want to go up the ladder and each time I boom, there's another metric. And and I have found that that gives you a target, something to focus on, something to prove that you're committed to it and also something to achieve. Mm, and, and something to check in every day. And yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you're not showing any evidence of it, you're not really committed to it. So why waste your time on a goal that's not really something you're inspired by? If I don't see evidence, I just I, I go, that's not obviously important to me. That was a delusion. I want I want to be focusing on things that are meaningful because that's where you build momentum. Yeah. And at the passion and um, meaningfulness of it to you personally is what helps you ride out some of the more challenging aspects of reaching that goal too. Well, what, what's interesting is in the brain, it's been shown that neuroscience that when you're pursuing something that is deeply meaningful, that is highest in priority, that's highest in your values, that's extremely important, you don't see failure, you see feedback. Mm-hmm. So powerful. When you're not doing something that's most important in your life. So if you're not filling your day with high priority actions that inspire you and you allow it to be filled up with low priority distractions that don't, because of the unfulfillment, you go into the subcortical amygdala and the amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure. And so you look for fantasies. And then when the 
unexpected hit you. They seem like failures or nightmares and you don't want them and it becomes distressful and it causes illness. But if you're pursuing challenges that inspire you, it causes wellness. So if you don't fill your day with challenges that inspire you, it's gonna fill up with challenges that don't. And when it's filling up with challenges that inspire you, you see it as feedback. When it doesn't fill up with those and it fills up with things you don't want it, you see it as failure. Failure is a label of actually a feedback system unseen, trying to guide you to set authentic objectives, not fantasies. Yeah. And can I ask you, can you, how do you feel about the healthiness of a financial goal? You mentioned you have them as well. And I know lots of people have interesting, sometimes self-sabotaging money stories, um, things holding them back. Uh, I always say good people have more money, get to do more good things in the world. So to help more people. And um, I'm just curious to see what you think about um, being motivated by money as a key metric in life? Well, I, I tend to think that there's seven primary areas of life. We have a human quest for original ideas that contribute to the world and using our minds to the fullest. We have a quest to make a contribution in business to, or be of some service to people and get paid for it. Uh, a desire for financial mastery where you're not working as a slave for money, but it's working for you because you've invested it and it's passively coming in now. Uh, a, a loving, intimate relationship, a social influence and leadership capacity, a physical fitness and well-being and attractiveness, and also being inspired by a mission, something that really inspires you. I, I think that if we look around the world, you'll find that after doing value determinations I've done on, God, hundreds of thousands of people, I've seen a complete spectrum and some people have a very high value on family. Some people have a high value on business. Some people have a high value on spirituality, some on mental development and academia, some on wealth building. None of them are right or wrong. That's the, the, the illusion is that there's something better. Everybody in their hierarchy of values is going to project onto others, their values and assume that everybody should have their values, but everybody's got different sets of values and everybody's needed in to make the world work. And so to say that money is wrong or right is, is illusioned. Master all the areas, as far as I'm concerned, and empower all of them. Because any area of our life we don't empower, somebody's going to overpower us. So I'm a firm believer in you want to you create and, and study and gain specialized knowledge on something that can make a difference so you have the fulfillment of contributing to people's lives with your knowledge. The same thing in your business capacities. You want to be able to do effective and efficient actions that serve ever greater numbers of people because there's a fulfillment in that. you want to be able to have your money working for you so you're not having to work for money you know i'm financially independent i've got i'm in that nice network or whatever and net worth i don't have to work <laughs> i work because i love working i'm, I'm i would I, I don't want to stop I'm, I'm doing people that have money morning blues and wednesday hump days and thank god it's fridays and week friggin ends they want to get a a break and a vacation and they want to retire. They want to escape what's drudgery. When you're doing something you love doing, you don't want to escape. You want to be inspired and build momentum and do more of it. And so I, I want to be able to master that part. I want to also be able to have a global family dynamic where I've got, no matter where I'm in the world, I feel I'm connected to my, my loved ones because, you know, whether it's on Zoom or Skype or whatever you're talking or right next to them, you've got to give yourself permission to think globally today. 
And then I want to make a difference in the world. You know, I think that some people want to make a difference and have some sort of contribution, social politically or socially or some ecological system. You want to honor all of them. You want to empower all of them as far as I'm concerned. Nobody wants to get up and, and have less knowledge. Nobody wants to get up and feel like they've contributed less in business. Nobody wants to get up and have a poverty. Nobody wants to get up and say, I, I have a less fulfillment in my relationship or I, I want to make sure nobody ever knows who I am or I, I want to make sure I feel yuck, you know, sick. I, I definitely want to be, don't want to be inspired. I've never been, met anybody that didn't want to expand and fulfill more, but you want to make sure you're setting real objectives that you're really with strategies achieving or you're self-defeating, not fantasy. I don't want to promote fantasies. I want to promote momentum building, incrementally growing achievements that are real, that you're committed to, that are linked to what you value most in life. That's, that's what, and that's what my, my master plan and my, document books or for my gratitude books, because I get feedback on a daily basis, whether I'm on track or not. And I use that every day to refine it. So I am efficient and effective at achieving what's deeply meaningful to me that I want to bring to the world. Mm. And does that feedback also sometimes help you when you, or maybe a student has set a, um, a, a goal or a target that actually was fantasy or delusion? And you Oh keep, yeah. Yeah. Because because in a week later, a month later, two months, six months later, there's no action. See, there, I, I, I'm not a, the word sabotage, I've never found to be true. I just, I, I, what I find is people don't sabotage. They do exactly what their values are dictating. They're unaware of what their true values are. They've injected confusing values from other authorities in their life mothers yes fathers, and this is just in the in the and, age of self-help we can get very yeah. confused and then you confuse that that's what you're here for and then you go well i keep sabotaging why am i not doing that i had a guy the other day on a seminar and he says no matter what i do i never get around to working out and we did his values and it was number nine on his value uh. list. <laughs> okay so why is he going to work out so then i said you would you like to start working out he says yeah Unless you perceive that there's more advantages than disadvantages to working out in the ability to help you fulfill what's deeply meaningful to you, you're not going to work out. I said, what's most important? He said, well, I'm a business guy. I want to grow business and grow my wealth. I said, right now, if I said, how is working out going to help you do that? And he goes, I know it's taking up time. That's why you're not going to do it. Because in your mind, it's interfering with what you want. So how could working out do that? And I went, I said, who are your heroes out there in business? Da, da, da. How many of them work out? 40% of them worked out. I go, okay. And which ones of those 40% are the ones that you actually admire most? And he goes, wow. Now it's about 70% of the people that you admire work out. I said, so now how could working out help you in business? And we started getting creative ideas and we just started making links in his brain. And that's all it took. And then one week later, he done worked out three times. He never worked out before because once you see it on the way, not in the way in your brain and it's neuroplastically you're modeled, modeled in the brain, your brain spontaneously does what you believe is going to give you the greatest advantage to fulfill what's most meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. So true. And, and this played out in a very personal way for me the last few years. I reconnected with my sport of my childhood, tennis. And so from age 18, when you leave school and no one's organizing anything for you anymore, so often some of these, it's very easy to just stop playing because it's not organized for you anymore and no one gave you the memo on how to continue to do it as an adult. And so um, so I didn't hit 
a, a tennis ball for probably about 18 years. And uh, to me, that is tragic now, but I live without regrets and I already have a goal to win an international tournament age 85 and over. So I've got 40 years to get there. And, um, and so, but what the real kicker in the story for me was from age 18 to 38, 40, working out was always a have to, always a chore. I've got to get to the gym. I've got to go to the yoga class. I've got to, got to, got to. And kind of it would work in spurts and then I wouldn't. And then, but when I brought tennis back into the picture, one of my highest, highest love, biggest loves of my childhood, and it was like finding a long lost love again when I started. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden you can't, I mean, if someone says you want to go play a game, I'm saying yes before they finish the sentence. But what's really interesting is I now work out five, six times a, a week in the mornings because it helps my tennis. So it has completely changed my view of working out just as you went through with that student in the seminar. And I think if, just as you said, John, if we keep saying I gotta, 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 but we never, 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 you gotta dig deeper as to why. It's, it's not a sabotage, it's a prioritization. Anytime you hear yourself saying, I got to, I have to, I must, I should, I ought to, I supposed to, and I need to, it's an imperative coming from an outside authority whispering in your head about somebody else's values, not your own. And you never make a mistake in your own values. You only make a mistake when you compare your actions to other people's values. That's the big lesson. So there's no sabotage. There's self-depreciation is your friend, not your enemy. Self-depreciation lets you know that you're pursuing something that's not the most important thing in your life. And you're going to require external motivation instead of intrinsic inspiration. So why do anything that doesn't inspire you? Delegate everything else away. You know, I delegate everything. I even tell jokingly that I delegate to my girlfriend other lovers, you know, because <laughs> they're experts in what they're doing. If I go to my <laughs> if I go to my girlfriend and I said, look, I got Brad Pitt or Hugh Jackman to take care of the lovemaking tonight. Will you still love me if I do that? Because I'm I got a busy schedule. They'll say, We'll love you even more, honey. But I, I, I'm a believer in delegating anything other than what inspires you. You're not going to live an inspired life doing low priority stuff. So I don't do those. I just, I research, I teach, I go on Zoom. That's my travel. And I write as I do it. And that's it. I, I delegate everything off. I haven't driven a car in 30, over 30 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I don't do anything else except what I love doing. And that is a big, that's a big freedom that every human being is capable of doing but they don't allow themselves that because they live by duty, not design. Mm. And what, okay, I'm just abandoning my questions here because uh, it's too big a segue and I'm really interested in what you just said. Living by duty, not design. What is there for the path, the baby steps, if you like, where do we start? You first, the reason why I have on my website, drdmartin.com, uh, the value determination process is to find out what you really value. Mm. And someone people, can jump on your website and just go ahead and do that? It's free. It's free. Yeah. It's private. It takes 30 minutes of your time. It's asking 13 questions to soul search, to look at what your life demonstrates. And if you answer with integrity and not just make up what you fantasize, it'll be value, valuable and revealing. But I, I ask people to do it because it's, it's free. It's private. No one's going to see it except you. And you may want to do it a week from now, a month from now, a quarter from now, and every quarter from now, and take a look at what's really important to you as you're going through life. Because anytime you're setting goals that aren't really highest on your value, you're designed to not get them done 
procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate. Why am I not disciplined? Why am I? Because it's not important to you. When something's really important to you, you find a way of doing it. And why would you want to spend your time doing things that aren't important to you? That doesn't make any sense. I'm a firm believer that you can actually create a life, get handsomely paid to do exactly what you love to do. So you're getting remunerated handsomely for doing exactly what you love to do and exemplify what's possible for human beings. I've been teaching people that for years. You know that. And it's inspiring to watch what happened. I just, right before I got on here, I was speaking to a guy who just moved to Cyprus. Okay. The island of Cyprus. He bought a pile of acreage on waterfront property over the ocean with a mountain behind him. And he's building a resort there. Now, he sat down in a master planning program and wrote out what he wanted to do until he found it. He found the spot. And it's dirt cheap there. You can buy for just a few million dollars. You can buy some great land there. And so he's there doing it. And, and everybody said, well, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. What about that? Everybody's going to promote their values onto you. Even Spinoza, the great philosopher, 17th century, whatever, he, he said, you know, watch out. Everybody's going to tell you what they think you should do according to their values. But having the courage to be an unborrowed visionary and to not subordinate, conform to outside influences and be able to say this and then do it in a way that serves people is the most liberating path. That's living by design, not duty. Mm. So, so special. Um, so my next question actually does really work now. I want to dive into the word no today because uh, it has a negative connotation, but it's so powerful and positive in many ways. And I think, uh, especially in the way that you're just talking about. Well, if you can't say no to things that are low priority, and say yes to what's important and find the one thing that inspires you that's deeply meaningful to you, you're gonna distract your life away. And you're gonna end up having Bonnie Ware's regrets at the end of your life. All the regrets, I wish I'd have done this, I could have done this, I should have done. No, you got your, your day, each day is your priority. And if you don't schedule the day and prioritize it, everybody else is going to schedule it. And it, it, not making a decision is making a decision through other people. Yeah, it is. So, and, and I found out when I have an extremely busy day, I get a, I have an itinerary that is given to me that I have, I have publicists in different countries. I've got people that are involving in uh, podcast organization, people that are doing webinars, people are doing seminars, uh, research, consulting meetings. I have different specialists that come in and have one common um, schedule that goes through one lady that manages that schedule. And all of wherever it is comes from around the world at different times of day, she's managing it else. And I've given her a priority of what I want in my day and how I want my day. And her responsibility is to make sure it's set up by the priority. And if it's filled, it's easy to say no. There's no time. The day's full. Thank you. Don't have time today. Thank you. Well, you've got a human yeah. shield saying no for you yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> right now, if you had, if your day was filled with absolutely inspiring and meaningful things, it was really high priority, inspiring things, you say no. But you, when you have nothing but a gap there, it's, it's hard to say no. Hard, hard, hard to not say no. You, 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 you automatically going to say yes, because, well, I got, not, got nothing on my hands, because you're going to let fear of rejection stop you. And what's happened is you never build respect buying into the fear of rejection. You will never get respect that way. You only get respect when you say thank you, but no thank you. And they learn to respect your time too. And then get it in priority and teach them that if you really want my time, 
do something that is valuable to me that goes up on my value list and you'll get priority. I learned that from Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump's a controversial character. He used to have a 15 minute hourglass in his office as a gold, as you would expect, gold sand glass. And somebody would come in and have a meeting with him and he'd flip that and he says, you got 15 minutes and that's it. And I got the next meeting, go. But he found, out, he found out that most people rambled on and talked and stuff like that in the last 15 minutes to get down to business. He said, you got 15 minutes, make your decision. If you can't do it that, we're out. And he scheduled his, his very busy schedule and he got a lot done because of that. Well, and that just proves you can learn something good from pretty much everybody, no matter what the rest <laughs> is going on uh, in the background. Even, even Donald. You just have to spe- you just have to be a good chooser of what you choose to learn. I think I think well, we could it. say that. It, it, yeah. You can learn something from everybody. You can. If nothing else, what not to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so saying no, I, I would love an action here for people, people who have just realised, just in listening to this alone, um, I always say to uh, my membership club, um, take a look at your diary. Are you happy with what's in there? Rearrange, reorganize, remove, uh, and start to make it look like something you're looking forward to as you as you move through time. What do you have as a as a technique to help people start to feel like they've said yes to their whole day? Every day, just ask yourself a simple question. What's the highest priority action step I can do today to serve the greatest number of people in the most effective and efficient way, in a way that inspires me, using the resources that I have available? And if you stick to highest priority, it's easy to say no. And then when you when you do it, practice some different diplomatic ways of saying it. Thank you, but no thank you. Right now, my schedule is full. Thank you, but no thank you. Right now, I have got a very a high set of priorities right now that have quite a bit of urgency. Thank you, but no thank you. Uh, this is not the time for that. Thank you, but no thank you. That that doesn't really appeal to me. Thank you, but no thank you. Or you can say, you know, if I was to take that on with my schedule right now, I wouldn't be able to do it justice and you deserved having somebody fully potentially present with you. And I could I love that. that one. Yeah. There's different ways of doing it. You can do it diplomatically. If you make it where it's a win to them by saying no, they'll respect it. But the best sometimes just being flat. No, I had a guy. A guy contacted me in Houston many years ago, and he said, Dr. Martini, you're in town. I'd love to take you to dinner. Well, I had 14 people wanting to take me to dinner up, up until that because they found out I was in town. And I said, here's a list of 14 people I've said no to. Here's what I'll do. If you contact them and get at least seven of those 14 people all in one restaurant, you got an hour of my time. <laughs> cool. And at first he goes, oh, well, you're too busy for us? And I go, yes. <laughs> That's why, that's why you want to meet with me. And do you that's know what, John? I'm giggling nervously because there's a, oh, my gosh, I don't think I could ever do that. Well, um, because what do we do? Because imagine if 14 people took up an hour of your time. Yeah, and just yeah wanted, no, I know. Just, but that's what I mean. Talk. Yeah, yeah. I'm realizing that that's up. ridiculous. Yeah. Look, your time is your life. And if you're not prioritizing your life, you're letting other people decide. And nobody, I, I don't, I've never met anybody gets up in the morning and dedicates their life to your fulfillment. They're all doing what they think will bring fulfillment and what they think will bring fulfillment to you according to their values, not yours. So you have to be able to speak up. Now, that doesn't mean I don't go to dinner with some people sometimes, but when I've got a very, you know, I travel full-time, as you know, when I was traveling a lot. And when I come to Houston, I'm in there sometimes for just hours and I'm flying out again. So I don't have time to just go, you know, Shoot the shoot the bowl with people. It's not my priority. I've got 
I'd much rather be doing a consult with somebody that's running a major company or I'm meeting with somebody who's involved in politics or solving a problem in an educational system and using my time in a productive manner than just small talk. Because small talk doesn't make big lives. So if it's something that's deeply meaningful and it's up on my value list and you offer it to me and it's really meaningful to me, I'm going to make the time for it. But if it's not, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to choose by priority and say, thank you, but no, thank you. And they'll, you know what they do? They get the lesson and then they think of things that are really valuable and meaningful to you. And then they step up and they offer something that's a value. And then you go, then you got my time. You got my attention. And so outside of business with your core family, oldest friends, that's they, not they the schedule same. appointments. They schedule appointments. Right. Wow. And that okay. is literally because I, family might be. No, okay. So, okay. I'm kind of relieved by that. <laughs> yeah, when we, when we make love, we always schedule, we I'm like, schedule wow, that. he really doesn't have family right up there on his priorities. And no, that's I'm okay. Joking. They're number no. three for me. And I was no, we, we, we by that love making, We schedule lovemaking three weeks in advance at a certain time. I'm joking. This is <laughs> fun. Hey, no. I don't knock it. Like a lot, a, a lot of my friends do sexy Sundays because that way, at least you know you're checking in with your lover once well, a hey, week. Mm. No, but if if you, it depends on where family is on your values. If family is high in your values, you make it priority. If family is middle in the values, you make it middle priority. If you make it, it's low in the values, you don't have time for it. And there's a price for every one of those and a benefit for each one of those. So I don't, I don't make it wrong. Nobody see people think if you have a high value on family, people think you should have the high value on family. Not everybody does. The Dalai Lama doesn't have it. He doesn't have a high value on family. Yeah, <laughs> it it's no really kids. interesting, isn't it? And I think part of the uh, working on your values is actually accepting that not everybody is going to have the same values. Exactly. And that doesn't make you a mean person. Like with family, it doesn't make you not love your family. I remember when I did my values and. Uh, peace is number one, adventure is number two, family is number three. And I was like, oh, my God, I've just found out I don't like my family. Like, I, I was really traumatised by it. But then... Well, you, you got to look at the truth of what your life demonstrates. And it's not that I don't like or, and love them passionately because I really, really do. It's just that if I don't have my peace and adventure metrics in place... Um, you're, you know, you're not fun to be at the family anyway. I'm not fun to be with, exactly. Yeah, and it was exactly. a revelation. Um, well, I, if I have a choice between speaking versus researching and writing, I take speaking. If I have a choice uh, for researching and writing over um, doing investments, I'll do researching and writing. But if you look carefully what your life demonstrates, it's not right or wrong, it's just what your life demonstrates. And you got to honor yourself instead of compare yourself to others. If you compare yourself to somebody with a different set of values, you're going to be a cat beating yourself up because you can't swim like a fish. Mm. That's not and the way it, to live. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it can become more confusing over time for yeah. you as to what your values are. And you can become more and more frustrated by how little you're achieving if That's you keep it. looking outside. That's it. You have to go inside. The voice and the vision on the inside, when it's louder than all opinions on the outside, you begin to master your life. I said that back on the secret. But most people are afraid of not conforming. And so they lose themselves. That's why headache pills are so rampant because headache, headaches are nothing but internal conflicts between what you really truly would love to do in your life and all the pressures of all the peer pressures of conformity that you're faced by. Yeah. I and think what we've learned about pain in the last 20 years is 
really yeah. just showing us just how little this is a pharmaceutical deficiency problem and actually far more a uh, look inside Lifestyle problem. Book. Yeah, it, It's not knowing how to say no and saying no can be the most powerful thing. Imagine a no being a period on a sentence or a comma in a sentence. Uh, without it, it runs on and it doesn't make sense. And so your life doesn't make sense without the ability to say no. It's, an, it's a grammatical editing process that you got to be able to do to say no. And no great writing is done without a few no's. Edit. Powerful stuff. So self-talk then seems like a natural progression from this. Our internal script just, like, can you teach us, give us some tools today, right now, on how to upgrade our self-talk? Don't waste your time on anything other than the most important thing and most meaningful and inspiring and highest priority action daily. You will not talk to yourself other than respect if you do. But anytime, think about your day. If you got everything done that was the highest priority and you kept on top of it, you really kept it, boom, highest priority, next highest priority, next highest priority. How did you feel at the end of the day? Mm. And how, how resilient and adaptable and objective you were when you came home. You, were, you could handle anything that when you came home. But think about a day when you had fires you're putting out, you were doing lower priority stuff, you never got around to the most important things. How did you talk to yourself and how were you talking to other people then? It's not hard, it's not rocket science. Negative self-talk is an absolutely an essential component of a healthy psychology to let you know that you are pursuing unrealistic expectations on yourself to try to live in other people's values or to try to do one-sided events. Positive without negative, nice without mean, kind without cruel, peace without war, one-sided worlds. And many people are addicted to one-sidedness, which is a sign of an amygdala run, not an executive function. Amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure. The executive center embraces pain and pleasure in the pursuit of a great cause. Mm -hmm. And that is why we have a problem with uh, black and white polarization right now, right? We can't... <laughs> actually in the, middle. in the middle yeah well in, in america until a month or two ago we had unbelievable amount of polarization between democrats and republicans and i mean it's just ridiculous it's mm. it's it's almost like an animal behavior mm. uh, yeah we well had. when you get into the fight or flight engagement of course yeah. it's going to escalate it's just going to keep escalating until someone that's what it does it's, yeah it, 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 it's it the feeds itself of, it's the seed of subjective bias when you're in your executive function you have objectivity when you're in your amygdala, you have subjective bias and subjective bias can escalate into all or none, black and white and absolutes where there's no resiliency, no adaptability, you're stuck, you're projective, you're trying to make everybody to be like you, which is impossible and you clash and you, you have internal conflict and you project on others, all that's a symptom and the self-depreciation and aggrandizement, you puff yourself up with hype or put yourself down with hype, hyper, hypo, instead of being authentic. You can't be authentic living in lower values. You won't. I've been, I've been proving this and working on this for 48 years. I've been teaching 43 years on values. And I'm certain if you live by your highest value, your life changes. It, it, it evolves. And in terms of uh, crisis, feels like a nice little segue off um, the mention of politics. This is obviously more to do with the year that the world is going through. And I don't believe it's simply a health crisis. Uh, I think it's much bigger than that. We're asking ourselves a ton of questions about what's the best way forward as societies, as a, a globalized world. 
Um, but in a, in a more granular sense, there are a lot of people who feel in personal crisis right now, whether they can't pay the bills all of a sudden, redundancies, job losses, homelessness that no one expected or saw coming. There's a lot of crisis. Um, now, I don't m mean to speak specifically about this time because crisis in and of itself is a, is a wider subject, but um, how can we rise stronger? What are some ways that we can actually start to change the energy of this uh, and come out well, stronger? Uh, there's a thing called um, uh, evasion, immune evasion, which is basically uh, when a virus or a bacteria comes in, your immune system rises up and learns something from it. And then it eventually conquers the virus and the bacteria. And then the virus and bacteria learns something from it and learns to become more virile in order to override your immune system. And then the immune system rises up to build the next virus. And this is a normal hormesis where you need a challenge in order to keep evolving and developing. Individuals that see externally that these situations are a crisis are not focusing on how this is helping them grow to new levels more efficiently to serve more people. If you're sitting there running your story and being a victim of your history, you're not getting off your butt and doing something to make a difference in people's lives to solve problems. Because with these problems are new opportunities. Problems are opportunities to serve. That's the bottom line. Oh, so that is powerful. Wait, 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 wait. Problems are opportunities to serve. I just wanted to say that real slow and uh, give it some space because I think that is huge. That's post-it note on the fridge, keep reflecting stuff. So think about this. Right now, we learned in immunology how to create a vaccine, for instance, in one-fourth to one-fifth the time in history. That's an efficiency that just stepped up. We learned how to deal with distribution for healthcare in ways we never learned before. We learn what immune system is. We learn new insights about biology and immune systems and genetics. There's, we learned about new compounds and how the body responds. There's going to be an escalation of insights and growth. And there's also an escalation of job opportunities that come out of that. So if you choose to see a crisis and you choose not to see a blessing, that has nothing to do with the external world. That has everything to do with how you interpret it. You have, you have control of your perceptions, decisions, and actions. That's it. And if you don't take your perceptions and master the skill of asking how specifically is whatever's happening, helping me fulfill what's deeply meaningful to me, then you're going to be a victim of history, not a master of destiny. But if you ask how specifically is it helping me get what I'm, what I'm shooting for? How is it on the way, not in the way? And what do I decide now in the highest priority actions I can do now with this current reality to get what I'm shooting for? If, you, if you're not doing that, you're not using your brain. You're letting the world run you instead of you run you. Because if you can take whatever's happened and ask yourself now, instead of comparing yourself to the fantasy of how it used to be or the fantasy of how you wish it would be, what it is, as it is, how's it helping me? And what do I do now that's priority right now in this moment that can max, master, master and maximize the service for human beings? Because there's no fulfillment if we're not doing a service. Of course, we're having financial problems. We're not serving anybody. We're blaming things instead of serving people. Powerful. That makes a difference. That does make a huge difference. Um, next question I have for you is on uh, how we love ourselves. Because often, especially through hardships, it's easy to lose the love for ourselves. You can start to blame yourself for things or 
blame externally and then that makes you feel icky because you know that's not the right thing to do, grudges, et cetera, really basal kind of stuff. How do we build a love for ourselves if we're not feeling that right now? What, what could we do? Make a list of everything you're beating yourself up about, you feel ashamed of and guilty about, and write down who you think is affected by it in some way that you think has got more pain and pleasure, more loss and gain, or more negative than positive, and ask how did it serve them, what was the benefits to them, and what were the pleasures and the upsides to them, and don't say, I don't know. Look, you never looked. I do it every weekend in my breakthrough experience. I have When I take people to the breakthrough, they think they feel guilty about something. I said, okay, what's the upside to those people? Well, there isn't any. Look again. Every case, they can find it when they look. And then they go, oh, I don't feel guilty anymore because I've been carrying on guilt because I've chosen never to look at the upsides. I've been carrying on resentment because I chose never to look for the upsides. I've, I've been carrying on pride because I never chose to look at the downsides. I've been carrying on infatuation because I chose to never look at the downsides. If I choose to see one side or the other, I'm gonna be swayed by things that occupy space and time in my mind. But if I choose to see both sides, I'm centered again. And then I'm grateful again. And then I can love me and I can love them. That's called equanimity and equity. And that's the most sustainable fair exchange state that a human being can do. So asking questions that bring you conscious of the unconscious information that's actually there, but you're choosing not to see and becoming fully conscious and mindful about what's happening, liberates you from the bondage of all those infatuation and resentment content that runs and runs around space and time in your mind and occupies your mind and distracts you and keeps you lack, lack of focus. And you're not present when you're doing it. You're present when you're present and centered. So asking questions that center the mind liberates you from the bondage of those things that distract you. Can we break that down into an example? You mentioned that in the breakthrough experience, you see people go through that um, new process that you just went through super fast. I feel like I want to slow that down for people and actually go through something. Yeah. So, so let's say somebody comes up to you and they, they uh, verbally criticized you and you, you weren't expecting it. They really slandered you. Okay. So what I, I found out is the only reason we resent people is that they're reminding us of some part of ourselves we're not loving. It's, it's reminding us of us. So you go in there and go, well, what specific trait, action, or inaction did I perceive them displaying or demonstrating that I actually dis dislike? And narrow it down. What exactly did they do? Just to say, well, their views me is too vague. What did they do? Well, they verbally criticized me in front of my, my, my friends. Okay, good. Once you've defined that, now you ask this question. So go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that same or similar behavior, trait, action, inaction to somebody else. And then ask where were you? When was it? Who is it to? And who perceived you doing it? And I guarantee you, I've been doing it for 30 something years. I guarantee you, you won't find something in other people that you admire or despise without being able to find it in yourself if you look carefully enough. And this is not new. This has been known way back thousands of years. It's been known. Anybody that has reflective awareness knows to, that whatever we see in others is a reflection of what's going on in us. It's a projection of our own interpretation of reality. So taking the time to go and ask, where have I done that? Automatically makes you realize, well, who am I to judge them? And that calms some of them down. And then if you ask, so when they did that, how did it serve me? And what role did I play in that? What did I do that challenged their values enough for they would want to cut me down? Was I puffed up? Was I arrogant? Did I say things that went against what they stand for? What is it that initiated? Because if you don't know and you go, well, they just did that to me and I'm an innocent victim, you never get anywhere. You stay stuck. But if you go in there and find out what role you played 
and how it served you, what was the benefit to it, then it melts away and you realize that, oh, it's just a me growing and learning about owning the parts of me that have been disowned and allowing me to embrace all parts of myself. Because if you're trying to get rid of half of yourself or trying to get rid of half of other people, it's going to be futile. You don't have to get rid of any part of yourself to love yourself. And if you have a moral hypocrisy that you're trying to be one side all the time and never both sides, you're going to beat yourself up your whole life because you're going to be building yourself up all half the time and beating yourself up the half the time because you're caught in a moral, you might say, trap of moral hypocrisy. Nobody's going to be one. I'm not a nice person. I'm not a mean person. I'm not kind. I'm not cruel. I'm both. You support my values. I can be like a pussycat. You challenge my values. I'm a tiger. When I go in and check in in the airlines and they say, well, Dr. Martini, we've given you an upgrade. You've got the first class uh, <laughs> lounge, uh, all the food that you want and everything else. And we'll pamper you and massage you or anything else while you're waiting for your plane. I go, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really <laughs> but they say, well, somehow we've overlooked it and we've overbooked. And even though you have 20 million miles on our thing, and even though you've paid first class, um, some reason there's no opening except in the back of the plane and the coach or tomorrow or maybe next week, if we can get you on possibly. Mm -hmm. And I don't go, oh, (laughs) no, I say, uh, may, can we check again? And if that doesn't work, we go, can we bring a supervisor out with a smile? And if that doesn't work, you go, I want Richard Branson here now on this booth. (laughs) I I can be, I can be a tiger. So I'm not a human being that's one-sided. I don't, I, up that at age 30. I don't even waste my time trying to be a one-sided person. So when people say only be one-sided, BS. I'm not buying it. It's not true. Nobody's living by it. It's a moral hypocrisy and it traps people and it gets them caught in bipolar condition. They're going to end up on medication trying to be somebody they can't be. Mm, and I think as a society, does that not, is that not what gets us caught in this I feels like a bit of a vicious cycle right now where people are starting to become too scared to say anything because they're worried it's going to be the wrong way to say it or, you well, know. Well, think about the guys now. The guys now, if they see a pretty girl, they can't look. They can't, they can't, they have to control all their behaviors. I mean, there's some, there's some guys that are frightened of women now. And so the women are going to, they're going to get the benefit of being respected, but they're going to get the, the, the price of all of a sudden, nobody's coming on to me. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> it's going to have a backfiring mechanism because it's, it's, it's scaring some men for even saying something that may be flirtatious that normally started relationships. Mm, that's there's, interesting, there's, there's isn't it? And there is a price. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about that. That's a, it's quite a fragile subject um, because of the escalation of violence against women around the world when we really thought we were finally at a place. Certainly towards the 80s and 90s, it really started to feel like we were kicking equality goals, respect goals. But now, unfortunately, I know in this country, uh, Australia, our domestic violence statistics are going up. Um, Yes, especially. How do we bring respect back, but also allow for space for play for our natural biological, um, you know, chase and, you know, all like, you know, I grew up with with that. And I was very grateful to not have disrespect at any point in my um, flirtations or uh, boyfriends. I'm very, very lucky because I know most of my friends have actually had disrespectful moments. Um, so how do we feel free to love and chase and play together without also um, 
crossing the line. Yeah, I think well, I genuinely yeah. believe that that is now a complicated subject for some people growing up. Well, now now the, the, there's guys, I've been having fun talk, talking to guys that said, I'm not pursuing the girl anymore. She's got to pursue me. <laughs> now, now, now the women have to come on to the guy or the guy ain't touching it. It's quite funny. So they're going, well, they, they, have, to, they have to play on the what was once called the male role. And now they have to switch, swatch it because because now we're going towards sort of an androgyny, you know, the gender transitions there. And so now the, the roles are swapping. And so it's quite fun watching. But there's some people that, you know, they take a risk. They just they, they flirt and they go on the edge. But I think our executive center intuitively knows when we're crossing the line. We know. But what we do, we do is we let our amygdala get the best of us with subjective bias and then misinterpret that. And that's when we get into trouble. And that's the beauty of what's happening with the female stepping up. It's, it's, it's making people and men accountable. Mm-hmm. But at exactly. the same time, it can go to the other extreme if it goes too far, though. If it goes to the too extreme where the guy is saying, well, I'm not even going to date you. I'm going to play with myself. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because I'm worried that works. I'm going to have a lawsuit or and they could Yeah, be, because yeah. I can't take a risk. I know guys right now that they they because they have wealth. They 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 have to have signatures on pieces of paper in advance before they'll actually have any intimacy. It's it's a document, a legal document. There are guys doing that right now. They will not go out on a date and go out and any kissing, hugging, contact or anything like that. They're going to get a document. I know people that are doing that that have a hundred million dollars and up or fifty million dollars and up because they're targets. Lawyers are targets to them. That's the price they're paying for the wealth. There are people actually Isn't that, in that just situation. so desperately sad and far from our beautiful biology? Yeah. Mm. So personally, I, I, I have no problem flirting and having flirts. I think it's fun. But at the same time, I don't cross the line. And the crossing of the line is what people, men do need to have their governance on when they cross the line. And so do women. And women go just as far as sometimes. I've seen women just absolutely be stalkers. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had some stalking women that are just definitely crossed the line. But the thing is, is there's, this, there's a governance inside and you have to be able to intuitively know what that governance is. And if you don't, well, then you deserve to get smacked around until you learn to get it. That's it. And how do we teach our kids growing up that, that internal governance, that respect? Well, the thing is, the, the internal governance is maximum when people are doing what they value most. Mm, interesting. That's it. Think about this. If you have a major performance or a major contest in tennis and it's coming up in 10 days, what is your discipline level between those next 10 days? Oh my God, so high. Yeah. Yeah. Now what happens if you finished it? Now you don't have another contest for three months. What happens the day after you finish the contest? Give yourself a break, don't you? Yeah, give yourself a break. Mm -hmm. You lax. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's... So the amygdala comes online whenever you're not doing something deeply meaningful. So if you fill your day with something that is inspiring, that is deeply meaningful, imagine you're going to go out and get, well, I had a girl that I was working with that had a wedding just about a month and a half ago. The two weeks before she got in the wedding, she was in the gym every day. She was eating exactly a certain way. She was measuring herself. She was making sure that her butt was tight or Boobs were, I mean, she wanted to make sure that she looked absolutely gorgeous in this amazing dress, right? Okay. The day after she had the wedding, that was the last time she'd been in the gym. 
She's been she's been walking, but she hasn't been monitoring her eating. She hasn't been monitoring her exercise because that day, that picture was extremely important to her and in front of all those people that she looked up to. Now she's got a routine. So if we don't fill our day with high priority actions that bring blood glucose and oxygen into the forebrain and the executive center where we have glutamate and GABA neurotransmitters regulating the impulses and instincts of the amygdala, the amygdala is going to run wild because we don't have governance on our stuff. And this is what men do. They get lustful instead of respectful. And the, when they're respectful, they have a, an objective communication and they can intuitively sense the lines, but they get blurred and subjectively biased and we misinterpret. You've had, I'm sure you've had men in your life or women in your life that misinterpreted how much somebody wanted them. I've had women that have erotomania. They've, they've had this fantasy that somebody's interested in them and they put on this fantasy on them and there's no indication whatsoever, but they create a fantasy in their mind. And when we're in our amygdala, we create fantasies and we get we want to consume our fantasies and we distort what's actually going on and misread people. And I, I first time I ever went to Latin America into Mexico when I was young, I noticed that the girls there will stare at you longer than in America on average, anywhere from two to three seconds longer when you meet them. So in America, if somebody stares at you for an extra three seconds and holds your eyes, it's creepy. You think, she wants me. Ah, she wants okay. me. Uh -huh. She wants me. Oh my God. In Latin America, that's just a normal respect. And it has nothing to do with any interest in you. So different cultures have different behaviors that are misinterpreted sometimes. And, but when we're living in our highest values, we have the highest probability of intuitively sensing those things and have more self-governance, therefore more respect. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So back to kids then and how we actually arrive into adulthood with that highest value structure. A lot of us parents, uh, we can get very confused by external messages as a parent, right? All the advice and how to bring the best out in your kids and how to awesome. help them live a wonderful life. Awesome. And, yeah. awesome. Okay. Tell awesome. us what to do. How find do out, we find out what the kids are really inspired by and do what you can to respectfully communicate what you believe will help them in terms of what will help the child in their values. And they will be amazingly governed. They won't have defiant disorder. They won't have attention deficit disorder. Children have a natural hierarchy of values and they love learning and they love engaging on whatever is meaningful to them. So all you have to do is find out what that is, not judge it, not put it down and find out what you believe will be of service to them and make sure that what you're projecting on them is not your own wounds and you're trying to protect them from your own wounds. A lot of people do that. A lot of parents do that. I was wounded by this, so I'm going to protect my kid from my wounds. And they're just, I think that's caring, but it's just carrying a, a wound and make sure that you, you communicate what it is that you believe will help them in terms of their values like a customer. If you do, they will respond like a customer when you communicate in a customer's values. When the customer feels their values are being met, they buy. And the children will buy your ideas if you do it respectfully in their values. And so how does that fit in with a, quite a conventional school system that most children around the world are involved in? Because that's going to be a bit the tricky. Teachers, if the teachers do not know how to communicate in children's values, they're going to end up putting them on Ritalin, giving them diagnosis and labeling them. And it's, it's ridiculous. I, I trained children in Alexander Township in South Africa and the teachers and the principals in a school system. 
And we took the matric rate from extremely low levels to extremely high levels in one year by training the finding out what the values of the, the teachers were, finding out what the curriculum was, linking the curriculum to the values so they were inspired and engaged teaching, finding out what the kids' values are, linking the classes to those and how the classes would help them fulfill that, and then taking the teachers' values and the kids' values and linking those so they would respect each other in their communications. And it was so drastic, so drastic, the overall upgrade and what happened in passing school and participation in school, it was mind-boggling, mm. mind-boggling. So and it's, have, it's just sustainable. Have you done that on uh, anywhere else? Is that something yeah, you're I've excited to Canada, continue to do? United States, Canada, United States, Mexico, Tokyo, uh, Ireland, South, South Africa, um, and in, um, in England. Mm-hmm. Super special. Yeah, I guess um, I'm excited by that because that's definitely what I try to do with my son, especially if he's really struggling on a subject and he has to do it. I try and find, I put it back to what he's re- he really values and then we help draw a path between what this activity is going to do to help achieve that value. That's it. That's mm. it. I, I had a kid, I was speaking to 200 teachers, principals, administrators, and a few uh, other faculty and parents in a conference in Connecticut. And in the front row was a, a, a counselor and a mother with a young boy a little young boy, 12 year old boy. And the mother put her hand up at, at question time. And she said, what do you, what happens if you have a child that's unmotivated, uh, lazy, uh, disengaged and, and, um, and disobedient mm. and doesn't want to do school. And they would not typically be called or labeled a bad student. Yeah. Mm. And the kid's sitting there. Mm. And the, the, the counselor is proud that she diagnosed this. Oh, goodness. And the mother's sitting there and calling the kid right in front of him. That's it. And I said, ma'am, there is no such thing. And I got this look on this, this counselor. Mm. Said, what? She was great. <laughs> and the mother goes, what do you mean there's no such thing? I said, there's no such thing as a kid that doesn't want to learn and is what you just labeled. That's a symptom of not knowing how to effectively communicate with children. That's a symptom. Not a, that's not a problem with the child. That's a problem with the system. So let me explain something. Is this the child you're talking about? Yes, it is. I asked, I said, I reached down, I got close on my knees and I said, or down, not on my knees, but I scooched down a bit because he's down on the sitting in a chair. And I said, I said, just out of curiosity, what is it you love doing? What is it you can spend all day doing? He said, video ice hockey. And I said, uh, you love video ice hockey? He says, yeah. You good at it? Yeah. You know how to play ice hockey too? Yeah. But you love the video ice hockey? Yeah. I said, and, and you can win those games. You're pretty damn good at it. He goes, yep. Can I, you can beat your buddies. Yep. I said, just, just out of curiosity here. And then I made everybody in the room. I said, get your notepaper out. There's going to be a pop quiz, a pop test in 30 minutes, a pop quiz on what you're about to learn from this boy. You're going to take notes from what he says. Okay. So I'm, I'm flipping the whole thing and I'm going to show something. So I said, all right. I said, so do you know a lot about ice hockey? He says, yeah. I said, you know the ice hockey players? He said, yeah. He says, give me some names of famous ice hockey players. Broom, 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 broom. He rattled them off. I said, what uniform numbers do they have? Broom, 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 broom. What do you have? What role, what role do they play? Broom, 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 broom. What team are they on? Boom, 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 boom. What's their ratios of fouls and goalies, right? Goals. Boom, 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 boom. I said, 
you're being quizzed on this, you better be taking notes. And he just rattled off with a photographic, autographic memory, learning what he wanted to learn. Nobody had a problem learning there. He was learning fine. He had memorized that and knew that could rattle it off in lightning speed. And I said, and, and now I got a question for you. What's the hardest class you got right now in your life? He goes, math. And I said, okay, when you're playing ice hockey, you're playing on a big ice hockey rink, aren't you? Right? Yeah. What shape is it? Well, it's sort of rectangular. It's kind of, you know, is that like two squares? Yeah. And in the corners, is it round? Is that like a semicircle, part of a circle, a section of a circle, a detached to the square? Isn't squares and circles mathematics? He goes, yeah. I said, and aren't you shooting it down to a goal, which is a rectangle, right? Two poles and a thing going across it and a little basket of, of nets. Yeah. And aren't the nets spirals, which is mathematics, and the threads that are woven together in a spiral, which is a mathematical design? Yeah. And aren't you keeping scores on when it goes in there? You're keeping the ratios of one score versus the other in that amount fraction? Yeah. And aren't you doing all the numbers in those fractions with the numbers of all the uniforms? He goes, yeah. Isn't that all mathematics? Yeah. And, and aren't you shooting it in different strategies at different angles? And those are trigonometric mathematics? Yeah. And I, and I went through for 14 minutes. And I sat with him and just asked him questions on mathematics. I said, is there anything about ice hockey that's not mathematics? He goes, no. And are the people getting a certain amount of money for their playing? Yeah. Do you know what those prices and what they get paid every year? And he rattled them off. I said, and, and, and can you see the ones that get paid the most and the ones that get paid the least? You're going to be watching the ones that get paid the most because they're usually better and they're producing more and therefore they make more money because more people come and watch them. And the number of fans that they bring, they're keeping ratios that that's mathematics. Yeah. Is there anything here that's not mathematics? He goes, no. I said, so mathematics is, is one of the keys to ice hockey, isn't it? He goes, yeah, and if you're using an ice puck and whatever, you need to know the exact height and angle and everything else to be able to go and, and shoot it. And the weight of it is a circular little puck, right? It's all mathematics. He goes, yeah. He turns to his mom and says, mom, can you get me a book on mathematics to help me understand all this? And then I said, your, problem, your son does not have a problem learning. He does not have a problem with obedience. He has people who don't understand his values, dishonoring his values, devaluing his values and not respecting it and not knowing how to communicate in his values and not learning of it because they're autocratically projecting their values onto the child. And I said, now I'm doing a pop quiz. Come up, kid. Ask him the question and on the, ask him who are the leading people in, in ice hockey, see if they listen to you. And then I swapped it and made it where he now knows what it's like to be the teacher and he, she, the, the people now know what it's like to be in a class learning something that's not on their values every day and why they're not doing well in school. And I swapped the whole thing and made the kid have fun putting the teachers and the principals in their place and sat down and he got a standing ovation. That is so powerful. Everybody that's wants to learn just... valuable Mm. so powerful I dare say some teachers out there are inspired to take that to the next level in their classrooms well in my values factor that. book my little values uh, uh, factor book there's a whole chapter on just that so if they mm. want to go study that they can go read about it because it does make a difference in learning mm. and how does a parent stop themselves from projecting their fears on a child go and take care of their own wounds. Mm. 
Because anything that's stored in your subconscious mind, you're going to create in your children just to teach you the lesson to make sure you have to get through it and break through it. You can't escape what you haven't loved in life. And anything you're not grateful for is baggage. And you're going to try to protect him from your own wounds. And then you're going to end up having to face those wounds because it's your stuff, not their stuff. Best thing to do is go back and clear your own wounds. That's why I teach the breakthrough experience and try to teach people how to do that. And to go back and take anything you can't say thank you for in life, go find out how it was on the way, not in the way, and how it served you and other people so it's no longer something you're frightened about and something you're trying to protect people from. Because otherwise, you're robbing them of their lessons and whatever you there. Anytime you're pursuing something you're infatuated with, you're looking for protection, you attract aggression. You're looking for kind and everything else, you attract mean. Whatever you're looking for that keeps you juvenile dependent and makes you supported and not really have accountability and not really resiliency is going to attract you the opposite to get you back into full production because maximum growth and development occurs at the border of support and challenge not one-sidedness both-sidedness if we had prey and we didn't have predator we'd be have gluttony we'd be overweight we would just be eating and we wouldn't have fitness if we had predator without prey we would have emaciation no food Neither one of them lead to fitness, but when you put prey and predator together and you eat just the right amount to maintain your fitness and keep your, keep your body ready and sharp alert. So you need both support and challenge, not just one side. You need both sides in life. That's so key. And do you think that these are some of the things that we can tune into? Uh, and, and this is an extremely sensitive um, topic and um uh, I'm just going to give a uh, suicide uh, warning here just for anyone that just can't do this topic um, to maybe just leave the conversation now. Um, but if you want to stick around, because I'm really keen to hear what you have to say. This is, it seems to be epidemic. It seems to be like suicide is rising in our teenagers and people blame online bullying and a bunch of stuff. Um, but I think you're going to have maybe a different answer and it yeah, might challenge us, uh, but I want to hear it because, yeah. uh, you know, you're you. And I think we can yeah. learn. Well, I, I, I stirred up a thing in Australia in the Daily Telegraph on bullying there. And then the Huffington Post, I did some things there. Um, and I encourage people to go to the Daily Telegraph, Martini, and also the Huffington Post, Martini on bullying. I've asked people, millions now, not just thousands, millions how many have been bullied? Every hand goes up. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in your life, you felt you've been bullied by somebody. Oh yeah, I still remember the day. <laughs> and then, then I also asked how many know that other people perceive them bullied, that you have bullied other people and all the hands go up. I don't know of anybody that hasn't been bullied. I don't know anybody that hasn't bullied somebody in some form or fashion, in some capacity, in one of the areas of our life, at work, in business, in our relationship, somewhere we bully people when our values are challenged. So I went on the Huffington Post and wrote up what goes on in the psychology of the bully and what's inside their mind and what they perceive. And that's worth reading if they haven't, if you get a chance to I'll, read it. I'll pop it in the show notes. Thanks, John. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good one. Mm. But many times I found it, I, I remember when I was a kid, there was a guy that lived around the corner that had extremely overprotective parents. Now, I think he had some sort of a, a weak immune system and was vulnerable to illness. And so they were trying to protect him. 
but it's also like the bubble baby that overprotected person doesn't develop immunity. You know, that's, that's another aspect of the immune system. But the, in the neighborhood, I watched this kid just like a magnet attract bullies to him. They'd go by and ride by on a bicycle and kick him when he's standing on the street or they'd throw stuff at him. And I just watched this kid just attracted bullies left and right. I was always curious about that when I was a kid. I can't say that I was interested in bullying the kid. I didn't really attach the kid, but I just watched massive bullying to this kid. And the more his parents was overprotecting him and trying to keep him safe, the more it was happening. They finally moved out of the, the neighborhood because they thought the neighborhood was mean, right? But once they he the kid was gone, I didn't see I didn't see anybody but bullied. I watched a distinct relationship between support and challenge, overprotection and aggression. I watched this by dynamic going on, and people don't pay attention to that. They don't look at where the other side is. But my experience is the people that have bullied and toughened me up or whatever made me more resilient, made me more adaptable, get more creative, come up with more solutions and empower my life more so than the people that protected me and made my life too easy. And in most every family, there's somebody in the family that is the entrepreneur and the other one that's more homebound, the traveler and the homebound, the, the entrepreneur and the one that goes work for security, the one that's adventurous and takes risks and the other one that's more secure, the one that likes to think for themselves and the other one that fits in and conforms. You'll see these pairs of opposites in the family. If you look carefully, you'll see that the way people are treating one is more supportive, that they become more dependent. And the ones that were more challenged, they usually become the entrepreneurs and more creatives. They come out and think for themselves. You know, my, my sister wanted to, when I was about 13, 14, I left home and I lived on the streets and I was a tough kid, right? And I, I, I got, my parents dropped me off on the freeway when I was 14 years old to go hitchhike across America to attack to, from Texas to California. They said, go do it, man, right? They were like, they gave me the freedom to do it. And there's a lot of reasons why they did it. It wasn't because of cruelty. It was because they knew I wasn't, I couldn't read. I had learning problems at top. And they wanted me to go surfing and go ride big waves, which Texas wasn't the place. But my sister wanted to go and they said, no, no, no. They overprotected my sister and she became the vulnerable one. And I got, I became the resilient one. I could live on the streets and I could handle just about anything. I became the entrepreneur. She was rescued most of the rest of her life. And she was bullied by people because of that, because, because the universe is trying to make her grow up and become independent. So you want to make sure you're not seeing this as one side and get addicted to only peace and support and positive and nice and kind and sweet and one side of life, because that's not all of life. You need both sides of life. And so how, how, and how do we then um, grow our own sense of, uh, is it bravery? Is it, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. In no, we're only frightened if we have fantasies. Gotcha. If we have a fantasy that we're, when we're, when we're addicted to only support, challenge hurts. When we're addicted to only praise, reprimand and criticism hurts. And then we accentuate our perception of bully. You know, I, I was told when I was a kid, I had to wear a dunce cap. In a, in a room. And I was told I would never be able to read or write or communicate, never mount thing, never go very far in life. I had to wear braces as a child from age one and a half to four on my arms and leg. And I got ridiculed by people. People threw stones at me. I did all kinds of stuff. Thank God that happened. Because I got, I got to a point where, you know what? It's not about what everybody thinks. And that's it's where about the what I dream about. Yeah, that's where the gratitude piece comes from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what, 
because now if people, if you've got, I always say to be great is to be misunderstood. That's a quote by, by a Ralph Waldo Emerson. And to, you know, if you're not being ridiculed, if you're not being crucified, you're probably not on purpose in life. And if I go and look at all the great leaders, all the polymathic leaders that have made major differences in contribution in, in academia in philosophy and in, in Nobel prize winners, most of them were rejected and ridiculed and violently opposed for at least one generation of 30 to 40 year periods. Wagner, Einstein, uh, the, the guy Kusa, Nicholas de Kusa, all the people that have made major differences in the world got ridiculed along the way. That's part of the game. So if you want to make a difference, you're going to have to do it. Look at, go watch the video. Everybody who's listening is go watch the video. I never give up by Elon Musk. Go watch that video because his heroes that he looked up to in NASA and this astronauts went to court to try to stop him from creating his company and said, it's dangerous. You'll never be able to fly into space. A private enterprise can't do what a, a, a NASA can do. It's wrong, it's, it's dangerous, and you can't do it. And they criticized him, they ridiculed him until he launched four people, first class SpaceX to the space station in record time, record cost, and beat them. And then they got humbled and they thanked him with tears in his eyes. So ridicule is part of the journey of a person who's gonna go and do something different in the world. And you, if, with, if everybody stagnates and stays stuck in the same thing, there's no growth, there's no involvement. And do you- do you feel like to bring it back to um, teen mental illness, suicide rates, et cetera, do you feel like this is a really like a key part of the puzzle to reducing those numbers? I haven't seen one case of suicide that I've gotten to work with or teen uh, self-harms and things like that without unbelievable fantasies about how life's supposed to be. Right. Gotcha. Unbelievable fantasies. My mommy should have done this. The world's supposed to be this way. I'm supposed to have had this by now. So-and-so is not treating me nice. Well, and They're... we see that in um, uh, shooters as well, in, in school yeah. shootings, huge yeah. fantasies. Yeah. Fantasies about how life's supposed to be that's not real. I, I had one in New, New Zealand. I had a lady in New Zealand, 19-year-old girl that self-harmed and tried to commit suicide a bunch of times. And I went in there and she had a fantasy that it was going to bring her parents back together. She had a fantasy that that's, she was the cause. She, she was not the cause of them breaking up, but in her mind, she believed it. And she had a fantasy they had to come back or I'm not worth anything. And I, I'd rather die than not see my family together. So every time she would do that, they would both get together and talk. What do you, what do we do? Cause one had the money and one had the time to spend time with her. And so that was, that was her subconscious strategy to get their family together. Cause she had a fantasy that if they could be together, I'd be happy again. And that's not true, but that was the fantasy she had. But the man didn't leave the family because of her, because she was feeling guilty. He made it because they were having conflict and they didn't know how to manage their conflicts. Mm. But that's unrealistic so, expectations and fantasies a lot, a lot of times. And, and they, how, they, okay. then the pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical company comes in and says, oh, you have a biochemical imbalance. Well, that may be correlated, but that's not causal. Mm. But they want you to believe that so you'll be stuck on your medication for, for the rest of your life. That's crazy. Mm. Instead of starting to work on your support challenge metrics. No, no. Grow up and be accountable in life. That's because this, this fantasy of thinking a pill is going to get you out of this problem is when in fact, most of the pills have proven not to be effective. It's the stats are not showing it, but still it's sold that way because people don't want to, they don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to uh, stop their illusions and they don't know what to do to ask and break through it. That's why I teach what I do. 
to try to teach people how to break through those illusions because there's a lot of them. And I'm just going to say there, John, um, please allow me to um, have a duty of care around that. If anyone is on medication right now or considering it, there's nothing wrong with an SOS plan or being on the plan you're on and starting to bring in these concepts um, that John's talking about yeah, because it, could lead yeah, you somewhere a, really special as well. Yeah, but there's a there's a value for emergency situations. A hundred percent. Yeah, I just wanted. I think it's always important to yeah, say. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to negate that. But when I go in there and I find people that are sitting there and I watch the fantasies that they're on and the unrealistic expectations, mm. and we go and crack those fantasies, they wean off the medication. It's done. Mm, special. Wow. Whoo. So. As a parent right now, they're thinking, oh, my gosh, my child is living in a fantasy right now. I do not want this to lead to where it may lead. Uh, what can they do today? How can we start to change the conversation we're having with our kids? The first thing to do is to go and live your life by your own design, not duty, because you telling them to do something that you're not living means nothing. Exemplification is the first step. Number two, find out what they really value and show them how to be resourceful and show how no matter what's happening, they can get it. Train them on asking new sets of questions because the quality of their lives can be based on the quality of the questions they ask. If they ask massively amazing questions, their life can become amazing. But if they have a fantasy, why is the world not nice to me? It's not designed to be nice. Wake up. It's going to be nice and mean and kind and cruel and positive and negative and peaceful and warful. And it's going to be both in life. And if you're not prepared for that, you have a delusion about how life's going to be. You got to get grounded on it. You got to stop the fantasy promotions because we get fed fantasies. I call it the opium of the masses. It's sold in the marketplace. And it's and it's and then people are vulnerable to that. But but ask them how specifically is whatever's happening in their life, how does it help them get that? And they'll say it's not. Look again. Look again. And start using resourcefulness. Use your brain. Your brain has the capacity to take it. I've taken people, every imaginable situation from beatings to rapes to you name it, uh, deaths of family members, car crashes, uh, tragic explosions. I had a guy with 33 people died because of an O-ring explosion, the Philip 66 explosion in Houston, Texas. 33 people died in a massive ball of fire went in there and these people just all got incinerated. And the guy responsible was there and he went into a catatonic state. He couldn't handle the idea that he killed 33 people in his head. So I got to work with some really amazing cases. And I've yet to see anything that a mortal body can experience that our mortal soul, which I call the authentic spirit of unconditional love state, can't transcend. So I don't know of anything you can't transcend. So we have amazing resilience and adaptability if we know how to ask the right questions. So we don't have to be victims of anything in our history. We can turn them into opportunities, but we have to first believe in the possibility that it's even doable. Because if not, you won't even go down the road to ask those questions. Mm. And John, to finish, uh, can I ask you to share what questions you would like people to ask today? On those types of situations? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever's happening to me right now that I think is external to me, mm. It's not. It's your interpretation of what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. So first be accountable that this is your interpretation because 10 people might have a completely different interpretation of what's happening. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, how many thing, how many conspiracies out there of how and why COVID's around? Oh my goodness! Look at all yeah. the interpretations. Mm. Okay, so just because it's your interpretation doesn't mean it's a fact. So first, take your interpretation and realize that that's your projected interpretation based on your experience, and it does not mean it's a fact. It just means it's your opinion. The second thing, and that's that's holding yourself accountable. The second thing is ask how specifically is whatever happening? How is it helping me get what's most important to me? And then you answer that. And I don't care if it takes you an hour or two hours to answer it. Hold yourself accountable. And all of a sudden, you will turn this crisis into an opportunity. And then how can I use it right now to do something extraordinary in my life with it? And what action steps can I take right now to use this experience to serve people? If you ask those kinds of questions, life changes. It just changes. But if you sit there and go, why is this happening to me? Who do I blame? You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to stay victim. And victims don't make it. They don't, they're they the people that don't empower themselves. Victor Frankl went through the, the concentration camps, remember? And he found meaning in what other people didn't. And he survived. Hmm. Find meaning in what other people don't. I think that's a pretty special, powerful way to, to finish Ask, up. How, what's the meaning? The meaning, hmm. the, by the way, the mean is the mean between, according to Aristotle, the mean is the golden mean between the two polarities of opposites. So if you see something that's a downside and you think it's terrible, what's the upside? That's finding the meaning in it. If you see something that's all up and you're blinded by an infatuation, what's the downside? That's how you find meaning in it. The meaning is being able to ask questions to make you fully conscious of what you're unconscious of. So you're mindful and see both sides. And now you're objective and you know how to handle it. You see the hidden order in the apparent chaos. (sighs) John, thank you for our annual dose of kick up the butt martini, demartini style. <laughs> it was powerful as the first conversation was. I so appreciate your time, as I know everyone in the community does. Um, we'll put a stack of resources on how people can connect to your work uh, in the show notes. Uh, thank you and see you next time. I look forward to it. Thank you for the hour. It's been fun. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social, on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in. <laughs>